I'm sorry, Jasper, this is a fucking nightmare. Um, oh, do you not have to edit it? Oh, yeah, no, luckily. Oh, lol, that's amazing. <laughs> sorry, dude. <laughs> I'm joined here by uh, Sarah Manavis of the New Statesman and of various articles you absolutely have read on online about the internet, funnily enough. Um, and we're going to talk today about the uh, potential or attempted uh, policy that was meant to be implemented yesterday, which was the uh, 15th of July, about blocking pornography to uh, some kind of protecting the children situation. I just, whenever we talk about this, I do just think of that Simpsons meme that is, you know, very much on my mind. But um, so I just thought we'd talk about it. Uh, So first of all, we'll introduce it. Um, So Sarah, uh, what was the the pornography block? So yeah, so like a lot of people call it the porn ban, but in reality, it is more just like a block. It's essentially just an age ID restriction. So that if you were younger than 18 years old, you wouldn't be able to access online pornography. Um, and those who did access online pornography, and this is a very key element of it, so like the way to enforce it is that by... So in order to enforce it, what they would do is force every single person who ever watches online pornography to submit their ID. Uh, and the government would hold that, I'm sure, in a very secure way. Um, <laughs> and then you would essentially, like almost like a login system, have to log in type in your ID, plug in your ID to say, yes, I'm over 18 years old. Yes, may I please watch, like, lesbian scissoring MILF video. It's riddled with issues, but as Eugenie said, uh, it's it, it didn't happen. Essentially, they thought it was going to be the 15th of July. That was already a date that was in question. And then, essentially, Jeremy Wright, the DCMS uh, minister, said, oh, actually... We've massively screwed up on the dates, and we really don't know when it's going to be. It's probably going to be next year. Do you think this is ever going to happen at all? Because the number of delays that seem to have come about eh, might suggest that potentially um, this maybe might have been a little bit more of the proverbial biscuit that they can chew. I don't know, that metaphor kind of ran away from me there. But <laughs> I'm not sure it's a biscuit. Cut a bit off more than they can chew. I don't think there are any biscuits. I think it can be a biscuit, but it doesn't have to be a biscuit. Don't be so limited. No, I, I really, honest to God, like if I really was going to say, like if I was going to stake my dog's life on it, um, which you can follow on Instagram at Hey There It's Martha, always plugging, always be plugging. Um, yeah, I would say that like 100%, not 100%, like I would bet money on it that it's never going to happen. Like it's got so many logistical issues. Always love a chance to talk about uh, GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation uh, that came in last year on May 25th. Um, like there are just so many issues to tackle. Um, and like one of the really funny and like sort of ironic things that happened is that when the government was announcing to tech journalists like we're giving the press release away saying okay we're going to actually be introducing this age id thing they broke gdpr violate or gdpr code and accidentally put every single journalist which was like 150 journalists across the uk put all of their email addresses forgot to bcc essentially we've all been there um but yeah but like doxed a bunch of journalists emails to one another which obviously isn't like a super horrific data breach like i'm sure that those people like would know how to get in touch with each other if they really wanted to but again it's like the point that they were like hey trust us with your literal porn history um and not only trust us with your porn history with your email like let us literally have a picture of your id and your face i'm making a lot of you can't see this but i'm being (laughs) very emphatic in my gestures and even like my whole torso moving forward and getting (laughs) upset um and they're holding all of this um and then in announcing this saying please trust us with this very very sensitive data for 99 percent of people 
they're like, oh, by the way, we're also going to data breach while we do this. I don't think they're going to be able to do it. I really don't think that Jeremy Wright, who is like, what's a Facebook, like literally is not going to be able to implement like a very complex and incredibly sensitive law um, that that holds so much sensitive data um, and be able to literally be able to implement that in any effective way other than if like they implement it and then like a bunch of people's information gets doxxed um, and and yeah essentially that like a bunch of people actually have their porn search histories made readily available to the public or readily available to anyone which even one person finding out is obviously very humiliating for any of us so I think you touch on the fundamental there which is that ultimately we have people legislating on so much of our interactions with the internet, not just in our personal lives, but you know, in our day-to-day lives. And it seems to be, we seem to be legislated by people who just simply don't really understand the internet. Um, what can you see as the, the kind of future of uh, our relationship with technology, you know, in relation to, um, in relation to governments? And have there, have there been any policies implemented um, by our government or maybe even others that suggest that maybe people are starting to get it right? No, I think that's like a really like important element. Like I don't know if Jeremy Wright is literally only viewing porn via like classic mags. Um but like you think surely like he knows like and and I think that's it is like even I'm not I don't know if this is libel. Um but I just mean like I just mean like like surely at least a couple of these government ministers or the people working on these bills have watched porn online like most people have. Um and the thing about it is that like it's not just about the fact that a lot of people legislating on things don't even use the technology we use. It's that even when they do use it, they still don't understand like how it actually works and the intricacies of that. Um, and so I think that's part of the problem we have right now. Like I'm slightly more optimistic that like in 20 years time, this won't be as severe a problem just because of things like social media. Like there's just like a, the, the bar is so low for politicians right now that like, you could legislate on it and genuinely have never even opened Instagram or like really understand what it is beyond like a brief from a spad. And so I think that like the fact that we'll just have like a much more tech literate adult base in 20 years time makes me slightly more optimistic. But the thing is about that is that like sure, social media needs like extreme regulation. Um, And even like on the more basic elements of like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if those things will actually exist in that time. But you know, those like equivalents that we'll have in like 20 years. Um, it's the fact that like the things that actually probably need the most regulation that have like the most damning or the most damaging impacts um, on our society are things like 4chan, things like Reddit, that like, even if you are like a very active social media user, you'll know what they are, maybe like, you'll probably know what Reddit is, you probably won't know what 4chan is. But you won't have gone on these sites, and you won't actually really understand how they work. And you won't understand like the memes or the irony or like what things are cloaked behind like other language that is effectively like a dog whistle for anybody who does use it, but that those people aren't the ones that are in like power and they probably won't be the ones in power in 20 years time. Um, and so, yeah, like while I'm optimistic that it won't be as bad as it is now, I just think that like so much of it is like so draped in memes and weird shit like that. It's just going to be so hard to tackle it. Um, and, and yeah, kind of overcome that tech illiteracy. Yeah, I was reminded when you were speaking of, um, I think it was during the Senate hearings for Mark Zuckerberg, when I can't remember who it was, but some, um, was it some senator was asking him uh, all these questions about Google, I think it was, and he had to be like, um, so I'm the CEO of Facebook, not of Google, and I have, I can't answer your question, you know. It was all those jokes about like, um, you know, all these elderly senators asking Mark Zuckerberg to like, 
teach them how the Bluetooth works or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's bleak to think that these are the these are the people who are making uh, like massive decisions about uh, which will influence lots of people's kind of relationships with the internet but as you say you kind of hope that moving forward and as politicians get younger and more technologically literate i suppose people our age as kind of youthful millennials are um are probably the first i think we're probably the first digital natives right yeah yeah that'll be it yeah so once maybe once in the kind of levers of power um in the next 20 years or so that might that might bring some improvement but then you know whether we'll just be hopelessly out of date with uh, see i barely know what tiktok is but yeah i believe that's what the teens are all up to these days so uh, god who knows i actually am doing a piece for a new publication called um fast forward about um how magicians are really popular on tiktok <laughs> um and essentially um as I was trying to find people to speak to me for, for it, I'm doing a thing about how magicians have become really popular on TikTok, like literally like te- like millions of followers where like they'll have millions of followers on TikTok and on YouTube they'll have like 5,000. Like there's a guy called Magic Singh who literally has like, been do- he's been doing YouTube videos for 12 years, has gotten nowhere with it, has done TikTok for the last 18 months and is now like doing entertainment at like little mix house parties like literally it's crazy and because of tiktok but when i was going to try to find people to comment on it for the piece like looking through men are so fucking loud but as i was trying to find people to give me a comment for this piece i was really struggling to find someone that i wouldn't have to like go through parental permission to get because every single person's profile i clicked on was like 12 and 11 um yeah it was really really young like much younger than i was like oh 14 15 16 but no it was like literally like 10 year olds um with like videos of their faces and stuff but yeah no the uh that was a big tangent but the gen zers they, they love their tiktok they sure do what a what a strange and alarming world that we live in is <laughs> all i can really say to that so to kind of um to to pivot back to porn which is a great sentence to say in a public park what kind of interests me also about this was that the uh the group that the government had kind of put forward in order to create the software which you know as as sarah previously mentioned involved potentially going to your new local news agents and going please sir one pornography pass please with your with your photo identification and that all being fine um was that it was by the parent company of uh, I think it was X Hamster and uh, Uporn, and it was interesting how it was interesting to me certainly about how this um, this technology seems to be spearheaded by the companies themselves. We've kind of seen with Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, their ability to self-regulate could be described as problematic at best. Mm. I don't know. Um, I was just wondering, you know, what you saw, you know, when looking at the future, and uh, especially as you know what we were saying about the kind of level of tech illiteracy in government, whether having the companies themselves be involved in it you know is this a slippery slope to um you know almost like their lack of knowledge being taken advantage of or is this really the future of innovation for legislation that's a really good question i think it is like i think it's probably both um i do think it probably is a lot to do with taking advantage of how little people know like nick clegg did that thing a couple of weeks ago um where he was saying like regulate us like please like we're begging you like regulate us blah 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 blah. like regulate me daddy um (laughs) but it is it's almost like having like an adult man standing in like a kid-sized football goal post kind of thing and like having a little two-year-old standing there and you're like no hit it come on you've got an open goal like why don't you try blah 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 and it's like like i think that they know 
that they can do this. They can say like, yes, we're wide open. Like, take your best shot. Like, we want it. Like, help us, blah, blah, blah. But they know that that will result in like essentially nothing. Um, and so I think they just take advantage of that. And I think that they'll continue to take advantage of that until like the end of time, until we're all like living underwater in 2050 and like we're all dead anyways. Um, so yeah, I, th- I just think that's like our very grim reality and why like it really pisses me off um, that the government doesn't care more about this kind of thing because it's like, Obviously, my first, like in the, in my anger hierarchy, like the the companies themselves are always at the top because like they, they are literally playing with people's lives um and like huge societal impacts and things like that and like you know millions of people's lives every single day and then for like the rest of time um but equally like the government exists to check that sort of private balance um and. And yeah, it's just like, it's like, it's so irresponsible. Um, And because they know that like their voter base, a lot of the time, especially with the conservatives are other clueless adults. It's like, they don't really have to try because they don't have anyone outraged about it. And I just, yeah, I think they're just getting taken advantage of and they're happy to be getting taken advantage of. Well, on that highly dispiriting note, uh, I'd like to say thank you very much to Sarah for coming to join me. And apologies again, if you uh, picked up on any of the, uh, I don't know, we've had noisy groups uh, a helicopter at one point uh, as the wonders of central london on a on a wednesday lunchtime but um yeah i just want to say thank you to sarah and uh where can people find you online you know keep up to date with all your work plug 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 yes i love an opportunity to self-promote so you can find me at sarah manovis on twitter and on instagram just my full name nothing else nothing fancy um and then if you want to actually keep up with my articles um which god bless you if you do um it's sermonovice.com again the same nothing fancy um and yeah my instagram is not really content but it's much more wholesome so if you like fluffy cockapoos that have a knee problem like you can find lots of com- content like that on my insta um but yeah but i post pretty much everything i do on twitter um and i'm relatively responsive with replies so please at me and tell me if you hated this or if you liked it Joining us uh, as our guest on this week's episode of the Social Review podcast is David Lawrence, who works for the trade justice movement. Um, David, thank you very much for coming on to talk to us. Thank you for having me. Um, So for the benefit of our listeners, what exactly is the trade justice movement? I'm going to assume it's to do with trade and justice, but um, what what exactly does your role entail in the organisation? It is absolutely to do with trade and with justice. We (laughs) represent... Uh, 70 civil society organizations who 70? All, yeah, that's right, who all have an interest wow. in trade. Some of them you would have heard of, so some of the larger trade unions, some of the big development NGOs like Oxfam and Christian Aid, and uh, some big faith groups and environmental charities. Uh, all of these organizations have an interest in trade, and we uh, essentially campaign on their behalf. They are our members. Um, my job is Westminster facing, so I work with MPs and lords and civil servants and help them to design trade policy, which uh, works better for people and planet. That's our tagline. So obviously, um, trade and trade deals have been a massive public thing over the last couple of years with Brexit. Um, you're not working on Brexit specifically, right? Um, so I, yeah, I do work on Brexit. Um, okay. It. Brexit is huge for trade. Um, Firstly, it means that uh, trade is in people's minds at the moment. So we have a lot more interest in the kind of work that we do. Mm. Um, Brexit will mean that uh, the UK takes 
control of its trade policy for the first time in over 40 years because it's been um, a European Union competence. Mm. And uh, we think that's concerning but um, for the large part, but it does also throw up some interesting opportunities. Um, and I think for those of us on the left, it's an opportunity to reimagine a bit what international trade could look like after mm. Brexit. Because I suppose it's an area of policy which has never really needed to be touched in British politics in the same way that other issues such as healthcare and education and so forth um, have been, because it's always been an EU issue. Well, that's right, yeah. And we've found with members of parliament um, that there's uh, there are quite low levels of trade literacy, I would say, because mm. it's not something that parliaments had to deal with before. And so everyone kind of gets that it's important and that trade does touch on all these different areas of life, but uh, not many people actually understand how trade agreements work. Um, it gets quite legal and quite technical. Um, and so part of what we want to do, particularly when we're working with policymakers, is inform and educate them about trade deals uh, and also, I think, the human side of trade and how trade affects ordinary people, not just how it affects GDP and the economy. Mm. So how do trade agreements work? How will, um, well, conceivably, how could future British trade deals work with other countries, be it America or um, India, China, um, Japan, etc., etc.? I mean, it's, it's a big question. I think... Um, Trade deals are fundamentally quite political. Mm. They aren't primarily about um, the economy. That sounds like an odd thing to say, but mm. uh, they are about geopolitics and um, diplomacy. And uh, particularly the uh, proposal for a US trade deal after Brexit, I think, is very much a political prize for the government. It's a way of uh, the Conservative government saying that we don't need the European Union, that we have this new trading partner, the US. Um, it's, a, it's a way of demonstrating to voters and to the world that we are independent, that we're doing things differently. In economic terms, the trade deal with the US, as well as the other ones that the government have proposed, they aren't going to be a game changer. Um, mm. We already have eliminated most tariffs with the US. Um, we trade a lot with them already. Uh, it's more about the geopolitical signal that it sends. This is just something I've, I've always wondered. Um, so you say that we trade a lot with the US and we've already eliminated tariffs. What is the difference between a free trade deal and that action of um, removing tariffs and still trading with other countries? Like, what, what, what term would you use for that? Because we're, we're not trading under WTO rules, right, with, um, with America and other countries. So with America, we have... Um, we have various sort of smaller agreements that right, fall right. short of a free trade agreement. Uh, free trade agreements tend to be more comprehensive. They do cover tariffs, but mm. they also cover things like regulations. Uh, so one of the big concerns with the US trade deal is that it would signal a pivot towards a US method of regulating the economy, um, which is, uh, I would say, more pro-business rather than in the interests of public health or the environment or social welfare, uh, whereas the EU system is designed um, more progressively, I would say. So a big part of trade agreements is about regulation. Mm. Uh, there are also chapters on things like investment and public services um, and uh, other areas of the economy. So it's certainly not just about tariffs. Uh, I think when it comes to US trade deal, one of the big things that the US wants is access to our um, food markets. Uh, 
Mm. Um, so obviously US agriculture is a massive industry. And um, if you listen to the stuff that Liam Fox says, uh, I think he wants to see the UK move towards a more services-based economy. Um, so you would potentially see US food, um, which often is produced at much lower standards on British supermarket shelves. Um, so building off of that, um, with the big interest in trade in the past couple of years, um, as well as the kind of like, I suppose, new attitudes towards democracy and democratic engagement and ratification, which have come from Brexit and the public being asked on issues. Um, if you have trade deals, which are, as you say, more political than economic, um, does that mean that trade deals should be democratically ratified through referendums or should they be left to government and parliament without consulting, you know, quotation marks, the people? I think definitely you ultimately want to make sure that a trade deal has public backing mm. because it touches on so many areas of public policy. It affects the food that we eat, uh, the, work, the, the rights that we have at work, um, the, the, our public services and our health protection um, and all sorts of things. So it definitely needs to have the backing of people, ultimately. Um, I probably personally have sort of questions about referendums and how often <laughs> we should use those. Uh, but I certainly think that in a system where people assume that Parliament is sovereign, Parliament at least should have a say on these trade agreements. But in fact, the current system doesn't guarantee that MPs have a vote on a trade agreement. There's no process for Parliament to engage with the agreement for negotiations. There's no transparency during negotiations. Um, and this is because we, we use a system that was invented in the 1930s uh, at a time when the government was making lots of secretive, generally war-related treaties. And we haven't dealt with trade uh, ever since it's been an EU competence. And so we're going to return to this archaic system after Brexit where MPs really don't get much of a say. And I don't think that's what most people, um, if, if you ask someone on the street about a trade deal, if you mm. told them about what a US deal would include, their assumption would be that their MPs can stop that and that they can mm. write it to their MP and, and that their MP can vote against it or try and amend it or negotiate it differently. But that's not how these things work at all. The trade deals are completely um, in the hands of the, the government, the executive. It's part of the royal prerogative. And we've seen this debate around Brexit where many parliamentarians were, I think, genuinely surprised to realise that constitutionally um, they wouldn't get much say in the deal making with the EU and in the creation of the withdrawal agreement. Obviously, they had to fight for um, the, the meaningful vote, which was won through an amendment. And it, it, it wasn't prior to that. It wasn't sort of constitutionally guaranteed. It had to be built into primary legislation. Mm. And so, sorry, that's all quite technical, but the point is <laughs> that uh, we don't currently have a process for the democratic scrutiny and approval of trade agreements, even though they affect so much of everyday life. That's quite incredible. Um, but the, the point you made about Brexit and, and MPs um, really fighting for the chance to influence Brexit legislation um, is, a, is a good one. Um, so you think that trade deals should be democrat well should be should have the backing of the people um do you think that they will like looking at this just from a um practicality perspective let's say you have a referendum on the u.s trade deal and the referendum the 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 opposition lose um wins sorry so the public say no we don't want this trade deal um 
does that not then raise problems um, with regards to um, our relations with um, America and with um, uh, how any kind of trade deal could actually pass um, with any country? I mean, I think that given that even Parliament doesn't have the guaranteed say on a US trade deal, I can't conceive of a, a situation in which we'd have a referendum on it. Mm. Um, but to sort of go with your hypothesis, I think uh, I think I think the US knows that. Um, well, the US certainly knows that Donald Trump <laughs> is unpopular in the UK. Um, there's also been some research done by the IPPR, which shows that I, I think it was 82% of people in Britain would prefer to maintain the current high standards than to engage in a trade deal with the US. Mm. I also think that what you're seeing with Brexit, and this isn't an original point at all, but you're seeing um, lots of decisions that are related to our national identity being highly divisive. And I could imagine a US deal being similar, where you would get some people who would see it as core to the Brexit project, who would be very pro it. And I imagine people who are more pro-European, who want us to sort of maintain what we currently have as European Union members um, opposing US deal. So I could see it sort of uh, becoming becoming another culture war thing where mm. certain um, is sort of associated with certain ideologies and opposed by others. Um, so, so that's one likely outcome. But uh, at the moment, we're just fighting for even just for MPs to be able to reject it, let alone um, for it to go to the people. Building off of that again, um, let's say that the next government is a Labour one or a Labour, Green, Lib Dem, bizarre <laughs> rainbow coalition, um, is that, as that's what the polls seem to suggest could conceivably happen. Right, um, yeah. And let's say that a left-wing um, government um, is negotiating these trade deals. Will trade still be conducted in the way that it always um, has been with regards to... Um, free trade, um, low tariffs, um, or would we see a move to a more protectionist angle? So like, do, do you think that, mm. um, what, what kind of relationship do you think free trade will have with socialism? I think it's a really interesting question. Um, mm. I, to be honest, I, I don't know the answer, but um, mm. I know that the debate's not being had where it needs to be had. Um, at the moment, the, the most protectionist um, movements are coming from the right, so uh, Donald Trump and his trade wars with China, mm. um, the emphasis on supporting uh, national domestic industries mm. um, against foreign competition, particularly competition from China and the developing world. Um, most of that's coming from the right, whereas the left in general is more open, more globalist, more internationalist. Um, that said, historically, it's been the left that has raised the most questions about free trade. Um, and th this isn't a new debate, really. I mean, Brexit and Trump give it a new guise, but it goes right back to the Corn Laws about mm. what being open and engaged with the world while also protecting the most vulnerable in one's own country. Um, that was a huge debate that the Tory party had at the time. Um, and I think it's a debate which those of us on the left have to have because we want to be internationalists, we want to be open, we want to be engaging with our global partners. But equally, I think quite rightly, we realise that the current system of global trade is unfair. The rules are set up to benefit the rich and the powerful. And uh, that's at the cost of both um, 
the poor and marginalised in our own country, but also a lot of developing countries who don't benefit from the current system of global change. So I think whatever the left decides, the system does need a fundamental rethink. I think it's not going to look like old school protectionism. Um, I think it's got to look in some sense open. It's got to engage with the reality of globalization and with uh, a desire for working with our international partners. Um, but it's also got to look different from what we currently have. So that's what you say should happen. Um, but do you think that it will? Um, do you think that a Corbyn government um, will still be more internationalist than open? Um, because you referenced Trump and and um, and the right and uh, this kind of like protectionist state of um, uh, national domestic industry. Um, but Corbyn has, has spoken about the same things. He's spoken about um, protecting British manufacturers and industry, revitalizing British industry. Um, certainly not in the same protectionist way that Trump does um, uh, and linking it with those social issues. But I think it's still something that's on his radar. Um, so how do you think that could feasibly play out? I think it would probably lead to more fracturing between um, the government, the leadership and the PLP. Um, but what do you think? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. It, it definitely goes to the heart of the tension within the left at the moment and particularly the tension within the Labour Party. I think one of the interesting questions, e even aside from international trade, is to what extent Corbyn is willing to engage with uh, what I'd say is the world as it is, um, mm. the institutions and the um, systems that he has spent so much of his political career campaigning against. Uh, mm. But when you're prime minister of a country, you have to engage with those systems. You have to engage with Britain's allies like the US, which he's um, spent lots of his life criticizing, and with um, multilateral institutions like the WTO and NATO and the European Union. And it's very easy to be critical of these things when you're a backbencher, and it's still somewhat easy when you're leader of the opposition. But when you're prime minister, you have to engage with those institutions. We find this in international trade because we want to be critical, and uh, there are bits of the system which we think are fundamentally wrong. But at the same time, we're not going to overthrow the WTO overnight. Um, we have to engage with the reality of the world as it is, and uh, the world as it is is capitalist it's free trading um but there are still things that we can change about it there are still areas where we can win and make a difference um and we, we can do that alongside reimagining fundamentally how we'd like trade to look so i think that would be the interesting i suppose ideological question for corbyn but also a very practical one because if he wants to get something through parliament or stop something going through parliament he'll need to have his parliamentary Labour Party on board. So some of the EU trade agreements, which I think Corbyn has opposed, um, so like the Canada one, for instance, mm. some of his MPs uh, voted for it because they see it as um, open free trading. They tend to be more on the sort of, I suppose, more to the right of his party, more the more centrist and liberal-minded um, and equally, there might be places where he wants to do trade deals with or certain kinds of trade deals, which those on that side of the party would oppose. I don't know what exactly it would look like, but um, you could imagine him uh, pursuing trade agreements or certainly closer diplomatic ties with certain kinds of countries or regimes, which others in his party might not approve of. So I think it's going to be a big practical question as well as an ideological one. So moving away from trade and trade policy a bit, um, 
you are a Christian on the left, right? Um, That's right, yeah. And uh, you were at the, was it Christians on the Left conference? Is that what it's called? Uh, yeah, we had our first ever Christians on the Left day conference. Um, oh, first ever. Last Saturday, yes. Uh, I think it's the first ever, yeah. I think that's oh, what wow. I'm saying. Yeah, I've certainly never been to one before. I, 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 think, I think I'm right in saying that there has never been an awful lot of space for religion in progressive politics in the UK. Um, and religion has kind of fallen to the wayside, I think, in politics overall, um, particularly in this decade. Um, I mean, Theresa May has been very um open about her faith i suppose but um certainly not in any kind of like us style way and um i think i can't remember any specific quotes from david cameron but um or about david cameron but i think it was commonly accepted that he wasn't particularly religious right yeah i think i think he said uh it, his faith was like trying to get capital fm in the chilterns on and off <laughs> do you think there is a space for religion in progressive politics yeah. i mean i i absolutely do think that um, as a Christian on the left. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I'd also perhaps push back slightly on the claim that there hasn't been much of much space made for religion among progressives in the UK. I mean, I, I certainly um, am so glad that we're not in the situation that the US church is in. Mm. Um, I really like that in the UK you can meet a Christian and not know how they vote. Whereas in America, it's assumed that if you're a Christian, particularly if you're a certain kind of Christian, you will be a Republican by default. Mm. And I think it's great that in the UK we have diversity. Uh, diversity, And obviously I'm on the left and I think my, my faith motivates why I'm a Labour member. Um, but I like that, po- uh, that faith hasn't become so politicised that Christians are inextricably connected to one particular party. And on the point of uh, not knowing how Christians will vote in the UK, um, I've, I've always found it interesting as someone who grew up in the church, um, the same church um, as yourself, um, I always saw it as natural that um, Christianity and a belief in Christ and would uh, lead to a progressive politics. Um, but as you said, that isn't always the case. Um, why do you think it is that... Um, you get these right-wing fundamentalist Christians and um, Christians on the right who sometimes practice and preach um, beliefs which seem totally antithetical to the Bible and what Jesus was doing. Yeah, it's it's a massive question. I think mm. there there isn't a lot of ideological consistency. So I remember there was some research done by an American think tank which showed that prior to Trump winning the Republican nomination, mm. Christians were the evangelical Christians were the demographic the demographic in the US that cared most about the moral integrity of their president. So if they were polled, they were asked something like, you know, how much do these things matter in a president? And they ranked moral integrity the highest. After Trump won the Republican nomination, they were the demographic that claimed they cared least about personal moral wow. integrity in a president. And I think that shows it's not Christians leading the Republican Party it's the Republican Party leading Christians and Christians going where the party goes, which I think is a change um, from where things might have been in the Republican Party in the past. Not that I particularly approved of the Republican <laughs> Party in the past either, mm-hmm. but I think there has been this change where Christians have found themselves supporting this man, which I don't think US Christians would have supported 20 years ago. I don't know that for sure, but I think there has been this wider cultural change in America 
and we called it the culture war, which we've already mentioned once today. Um, <laughs> but I think this sort of assumption that you have to be on one of the sides of this divide. And as I said, I love that in Britain, Christians haven't had to make that choice yet. We haven't had to pin ourselves to one side of the mm. divide. But in America, I feel like I fear that it's too late, that if you're a Christian, you're assumed to be on this one side and you can end up backing a candidate who personifies so much of what Christianity stands against. And that somehow happened. I don't think it's ideologically consistent. I think there are mm. sociological, psychological factors at play there. So you mentioned those sociological and psychological factors. Um, what do you think those are? Because just off the top of my head, uh, the fish and bread story um, to the poor by the sea. Um, the idea, of, if you were to speak to a, um, a right-wing um, neoliberal conservative or Republican politician um, and say to them, it's like, oh yes, we should um, be giving out food to the poor for free, um, just out of a sense of moral duty, and they would be, you know, flabbergasted um, and would likely completely disagree with that. Maybe less so now, but certainly um, in like the 1980s um, when the neoliberal consensus was forming. Um, and as you say, it's completely ideologically inconsistent with um, the teachings that are in the Bible, specifically the New Testament. Um, so how do you think they get to that place? What are those factors which lead them to supporting someone with very little moral integrity, as you say? Yeah, I mean, it's um, a very good question. I think there is, um, I think that there's a myth that America used to be this Christian country where the church provided this political and moral leadership and a nostalgic sense among lots of Americans who identify as Christians that that past has been lost. And that ties into nostalgia more generally that we see on the right for a world where, you know, where America was greater and where there was mm. um, homegrown industry and where it was less diverse, perhaps, um, and people had more of a sense of place. I think when you tie religion into that, um, it's quite easy for Christians to toe the conservative line out of nostalgia for this mythical bygone Christian age. Mm. Um, so I think that's I think you see a bit of that in the UK, but I think we sort of uh, I guess we're a bit further ahead. I think uh, the church lost a lot of its sway long ago in the UK, whereas I think that's a more recent phenomenon in the US. So I think that's a big part of it. I guess ideologically there are um, that there will be just particular issues where Christians will disagree with a lot of where the left is at. Um, so uh, certain socially liberal movements uh, they would see as at odds with a very conservative understanding of Christian morality, or I suppose they would just call it an orthodox understanding of Christian morality. Mm. Um, and again, I think that's less of an issue in the UK where uh, Christians are a bit more flexible perhaps in terms of their understanding of the Bible and um, a bit more liberal in terms of their understanding of the role that the state should play in uh, pub public morality. Mm. And do you think that's going to stick? Because um, we're already starting to see the beginnings of the culture war as we've referenced um with boris johnson's leadership campaign um so the incident with um carrie simmons or simons um uh boris's own lack of morality i suppose and his infidelities um that is at odds with traditional christian teachings and um, traditional christian thought on morality um 
but uh, you don't really see any pushback on that from from Boris's supporters, including religious ones. Um, I think I think <laughs> I'm slightly more optimistic about okay. the UK, um, not because I'm optimistic about what Boris Johnson would be like as prime minister, <laughs> yeah, but because yeah. I think the church hasn't wedded itself to the Conservative Party. I think lots of Christians. Um, I mean, maybe I'm in a bit of a bubble, but I, 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 all the Christians I know sort of have big questions about um, Boris Johnson. Mm. And what you actually see uh, from the right-wing press and elsewhere is that the church is accused of being too left-wing. If you look mm. at what bishops in the House of Lords have said about welcoming refugees or about Justin food bank use or about austerity, um, these are quite culturally left-wing issues. And uh, I, I think it's it would be completely wrong to claim that the Anglican party is the Tory party at prayer, which is Mm. what it used to be Mm. known as. So I'm, I'm much more optimistic about uh, the church in the UK about um, not being wedded to a particular party and probably if anything being seen as more on the left today. Um, I think that's because the church is one of the few institutions. um, And it's certainly the only institution that I'm involved with that. Uh, is really engaged on the ground with people who are on both sides of the cultural divide. Um, so I'm, you know, a privileged university graduate who works in lobbying. Uh, most of my friends are sort of fellow educated lefties. Um, <laughs> but church is the one place I go where I meet people who voted leave, or I meet people who don't vote Labour, who are much older than me, who uh, aren't from the same cultural or class background as me. Without church, I don't know where I'd actually encounter those people. Mm. Um, And so I think the church has this really interesting position where, although it has bishops in the House of Lords and at the upper echelons of society, it's also engaged with the daily reality that so many people face. It's the foremost food bank provider, as we know, the church runs... um, debt advice services across the country Mm. uh vicars meet people every day who are struggling with the effects of austerity and there is this faithful engagement with local communities and of course you do get that outside of religion i can't claim that only um only the church does that uh but i think there is this something particularly special about the anglican parish system which means that you have this deep and long-term investment in a local community and if i think about where the sort of corners of hope are in British politics at the moment. That's probably actually where I see it happening. So if you had one bit of advice for social review listeners for getting out there and experiencing other political opinions, it would be to go to church. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Social Review podcast. Uh, first episode, I should say, uh, we have another episode going up on Thursday, which is a more regular episode. Uh, we've been on a bit of a hiatus. Um, I've been on holiday, Joe's been on holiday, everyone's been on holiday and busy, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, we're back in the full swing of things now with uh, Prime Minister Boris, Joe Swinson's leader of the Liberal Democrats, Brexit, Iran, 
all the hot button political issues uh, for us to talk about here on the podcast. Uh, so thanks very much for listening to these two fantastic interviews. Thank you to Sarah Manavis uh, from the New Statesman for coming on to talk to us and also to David Lawrence from the Trade Justice Movement. Uh, both of them are mentioned their Twitter handles, uh, but you can find them both on Twitter under their uh, names. The music you heard was, as per usual, Sweet of Her Mouth, composed by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons, and you will hear us all again uh, for a usual episode on Thursday or whatever day it is that you happen to be listening to the podcast on. Thanks and goodbye. Do you know that vine where like the girl is walking past on the street and the guy is like, oh my god, she said this. Like, anyways, I felt like that vine. <laughs> when those people pass by, okay.